my original thought, I wanted to do that performance slash concert slash talk at five U.S. cities. That was my idea. Thankfully, my director of operations raised her hand and she said, Marie, I don't want to crush your dreams, but I think doing that in five cities will take us under. What if we did it in New York? And I like took a step back. I was like, yeah. Marie Forleo is an entrepreneur, writer, philanthropist, and unshakable optimist dedicated to helping people become the person they most want to be. She should know. After an unfulfilling start on Wall Street, it was a call for advice with her dad that motivated her to realize she must re-embrace her creative side, which ultimately led her to work at Mademoiselle and then discover the world of life coaching. Fast forward to today. She's built a socially conscious digital empire that has touched millions with an award-winning show, Marie TV, world-class online training programs, a book in 16 languages, and an audience in 195 countries. Coming up, you'll hear how Marie got so good at digital marketing, why saying no to things can make you feel joyful, the harsh reality of opportunity cost, how tapping into the feelings in your body can provide a simple test for what's a bad choice versus what is merely outside your comfort zone, the value of listening to the little voice of intuition, how a craving for a croissant led to making the decision to close her office for four weeks each year. And why Marie's demand to change her book cover at the 11th hour made so much sense. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Marie, we are so excited to have you here today and really talk about your incredible career that you launched. I mean, 1999 is when you first started the Marie business. Yes. It was such a different version of what it is today. But I, when I tell people about that, and just when we think about where the world was at in 1999, first of all, you know, coaching wasn't even a thing yet. Digital business wasn't a thing. No Facebook. Uh, no fit, no social. Yep. <laughs> you know, blogs weren't even a thing yet. Certainly not podcasts. So it was a completely different landscape. Um, and I'm really happy that I've been doing this so long because I have such an incredible perspective on all the different stages of how so many things that people are doing today to make a living and also just the whole impetus of people doing their own thing and becoming an entrepreneur. You know, it wasn't as common as it is now. And I think that's a really exciting development. Can you take us back to 1999 yes. and tell us how did your business actually start and what was your career leading up to up to this? Yeah, so I started off on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street. So that was my first gig out of college. And uh, I'm a person who has a lot of energy, so I could never really imagine myself sitting behind a desk. And so I was super grateful and so excited to have this gig, right? Showing up every day, doing the best I possibly could. Um, and, you know, the folks I worked with, 99.9% .9 of them were men. It was a totally sexist environment. I was trying to like keep that smile on my face and you know what I mean? Just go in and do my best. But it was crushing me, honestly. I mean, from every different angle. First of all, the folks that I worked with, even though they were making like a bajillion dollars, which was more money than I'd ever even been witness to in my life, 
a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them seemed spiritually bankrupt. It was like they were pining for these two weeks out of the year that they could take vacation. And then, you know, the culture was such, it's like the bell would ring at four, you go out to strip clubs, do coke. Like it was just this whole thing. And I'm like, this is not my scene. And so I heard this little voice inside of me saying like, this isn't who you are. This isn't what you're meant to do. This isn't who you're supposed to be. And that little voice was just piping up louder and louder and louder. But the challenge was that little voice didn't tell me what else I should be doing. So I felt at a crossroads. I'm the first in my family to go to college. My parents had busted their buns to even put me through school. And here I am like wanting to quit and not having a backup plan, like nothing was making sense. So one day I'm on the floor of the stock exchange and I had only what I can identify now as like a panic attack, a little panic attack where I felt dizzy. I couldn't really breathe. I was starting to like, you know, see all kinds of lights in the air. And I told my boss at the time, I said, hey, I need to run out and get some coffee for a minute. He was like, fine. So I run out and instead of going to get coffee, I made a beeline to the nearest church. So I was, I went to Seton Hall University. So I had been there and just in a crisis, I was kind of trained to look up and ask just for a little bit of guidance. And I uh, sat myself on the steps and I was just bawling like a baby because I felt like such a loser. And the first clue I got was to call my dad. My dad gave me a piece of advice on that phone call that really did change my life. After I stopped, you know, crying and telling him like, oh, I can't stand this. What am I going to do? He's like, calm down, Ray. He's like, you've been working since you were nine years old. You've been babysitting. I'm not worried about you figuring out how to like keep a roof over your head or put food on the table. He goes, look, you're going to work for the next 40, 50 years. You have got to find something you love. And if this job is making you physically sick, then you got to quit and find something else and don't stop searching until you find it. That gave me that little crack of an opening to quit and realize that I wasn't just totally bringing, you know, shame on my family, you know what I mean? All that stuff. And uh, he didn't tell me what I should go try and do, but I had this clue that I was both really creative and I also really loved business. My dad was a small business owner and I used to love going into the shop with him on weekends and helping him take care of things. But I didn't know how to combine those two things because I think our culture does a really crappy job of helping to prepare young people to figure out how to make their way in the world, right? So the first thing I thought of was the world of magazine publishing, specifically um, because there's an art side and there's a commerce side. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I should go try and do that. So I signed up with a temp agency. I eventually got a position as an ad sales assistant with Gourmet Magazine, which was awesome. I'm a woman who loves food. I'm like, this is fantastic. My my desk Dream job. It was because I was next to the test kitchen and the did editors. You qu- how long after your conversation with your dad did you quit your job oh, like that day? Okay. It was like – I was very, waiting for you to yeah. walk back in there and be like, I need yeah. to get coffee, but I'm quitting. Yeah, no. I had to like process yeah. a little yes. – like just for a second and then actually go like, okay, what cycle of my paycheck. Do you know, like I had to make a tiny moment of a plan because it's, I was still, I was in debt already after college. So when I got this gig at Gourmet Magazine, I was like, okay, this has got to be it. You know, it was a lot more balanced. Uh, My boss was a woman. The publisher was a woman. I was like, this is going to be amazing. I'm learning all these new things. And then that little voice came back again. It was like, Marie, this isn't what you're supposed to do. This isn't who you're meant to be. You're supposed to be doing something different. And now I'm starting to panic. I'm like, what's wrong with me? I'm a really hard worker. I want to work, but I keep wanting to quit my job. So I took a step back and I said, okay, let me think about this. Wall Street, all numbers. Advertising side of a magazine, all numbers. Maybe 
I've been like abandoning my creative side. Maybe I'm meant to be on the editorial side of a magazine. That's what it must be, right? So I go to HR and I say, hey, the next time you have any position open on the edit side of any magazine, let me know. I'm going there. So a position came up at Mademoiselle and I became a fashion assistant at that magazine. I'm like, okay, this has got to be it, right? Working with designers, checking out new things, going to fashion shows, layouts, all this stuff. I was so excited, so happy. Fast forward six months, you can bet what happened. That voice came back and this time it was louder than ever. And I will be honest with you guys, I started to feel a sense of panic. I was like, am I broken? Do I have commitment issues? What is wrong? I graduated the valedictorian of my class. I can't seem to hold down a job. All my friends, they're like building adult lives. They're getting promotions. You know, they're doing all these things. And How old were you at this point? I was 23. So I graduated school early, but after you know, trying so many different things and having them all not work and quitting, I was just really questioning my sanity. So one day at work, I was on the internet and I stumbled across this new, uh, an article about a new profession at the time called coaching. And again, this is 1999, right? So nobody had heard of this before. And I read this article, you guys, and it was like something lit up in my soul. I swear it was like the clouds parted and little cherubs came out with their trumpets and it was like, oh, but here was the deal. The logical part of my mind was like, you're 23 years old. You can't hold down a job. You're in massive debt. Who the hell's going to hire a 23-year-old life coach? You haven't even lived life already. But the other side of me, my heart, my knowing, my soul, my intuition was like this this thing. You have to pursue this. So on the spot, I signed up for a three-year coach training program that was all done virtually. And I continued uh, working at Mademoiselle during the day. And I did all my training at night and on the weekends. A few months go by and I get a call from the HR department at Condé Nast Magazine. They have a promotion for me at Vogue. This was my fork in the road. It was like, okay, stay on that path keep that healthcare, that steady paycheck, a job that people actually understand. It's respectable. You can work at the best fashion magazine in the world or quit and do this weird ass life coaching thing that no one has even heard of. You don't even like what it's called. It sounds cheesy as heck. You don't know how to start a business, but something about it feels right. So um, I said no to the promotion. I quit working at magazines. I went back to bartending and waiting tables and worked my buns off trying to figure out how to start a coaching business from scratch. And I guess what happened next? I mean, it was a lot of <laughs> self-doubt. Yeah, like, oh, no. Oh, no. Because you mean, said it took three – it takes three years to get certified as a life coach. Oh, yeah. So I was working on – and, uh, you know, I'm doing my coach training. I'm, like, coaching any friend that would po- – their dogs, like, anyone that I could possibly work with just to get practice and just started, like, doing what one does, figuring out how to get a website like someone my dad knew. And, again, you have to understand the stage yes. we were at in terms of technology and the landscape. Like, I bartered with my dad's friend to build an HTML-coded my first website, right? Started understanding email marketing was brand new. Nobody had heard of it. Started publishing an email newsletter. Again, I'm working at the bar, uh, bartending, waiting tables, doing every side job I could. And it was just like slowly figuring out both how to become the best coach I could be, but also how to start a small business when I just had no idea how to do it in this new burgeoning digital landscape. But your heart was there. Oh, yeah. I loved it. And plus, I tried so many other things that were, at least on paper, dream jobs, 
right? Like working on Wall Street, again, not for everyone, but for some people, someone like me, it's like, wow, that that's an incredible opportunity. Working in magazines for uh, a house like Condé Nast, not too shabby, right? Like things that are respectable. I hated them. So for me, I had tried so many different things, but now I was willing to go all in on my own thing, which felt really exciting. Who was your first client? Friends. Like I was thinking about um, my friend Blake, uh, you know, just a young woman that I knew at the time. And I was like, just let me coach you. Like anything that you want to achieve, anything you want to change, let's just work together. We'll meet like half hour once a week. And I would take notes and I'd send her the follow-up. And it was it was super fun. So were your first clients in your age group? They were. And, okay. um, and then slowly after I was you know, publishing this online newsletter. And I, you know, I would go to Toastmasters. Like this is at a time when, no joke, you guys, I would be at the bar bartending and people would inevitably ask, so what else do you do? And they would assume that like, oh, you're probably wanting to be an actor. I was like, no, I'm a coach. And then I would tell them about, and I'd say, you know, I published this amazing email newsletter once a week, you should sign up. And I would whip out this yellow legal pad and they would write their name down and their email, and again, this was allowed at that time. This is before the anti-camp spam laws. And I would put them on my email list, and that's where I started getting clients from. And I signed up for Toastmasters because I was terrified of public speaking. So some of those people got on my newsletter. So it was just like this very slow hand-to-hand combat start. How many years did it take for your business to really start to take off? Well, I bartended and waited tables and did odd side gigs for seven years. But there's a little, there's an aside here that a lot of people don't know. So a couple of years into building my coaching practice, you know, I was committed not only to building the business, but to being a great coach. Part of that involved doing all of this personal development work, which I would do on myself in addition, right? You have to walk your talk. So I started realizing that calling myself a coach just felt extremely limiting. Every time people had asked me what I did and I said that, somehow it felt confining, like I was leaving out all of these other colors of who I am. And the truth was, I was also really passionate about dance and fitness. I was also really passionate about writing, about marketing, about speak. Like there was all these things. And I remember journaling at that time in my life and like these kind of angry pleas to God, like, why can't I just be one thing? Like I was never satisfied. And um, there was this moment, I remember being at a cocktail party and someone asked me what I did. And this phrase popped out of my mouth. I don't know where it came from. It was like a gift from the career gods. I responded with this. I said, I'm a multi-passionate entrepreneur. And they're like, what the hell is that? I'm like, I don't know. I just made it up. (laughs) But it gave me this new context through which I could talk about all the things I was interested in, one of which was dance and fitness. I had started um, taking a lot of hip hop classes here in New York City. My dance teachers thought I was good. I was like, I didn't even believe them at first. They said, you should start teaching. I auditioned to, to teach. I... I'm I'm kind of speeding a lot of this up because I could take forever and we wrote about it in the book. <laughs> but bottom line is I wound up having the simul career teaching dance and fitness, becoming a Nike elite dance athlete and traveling around the world and building my coaching business, which is how I got really good at digital marketing and understanding how to work with groups. So there's a lot of these things that happen. You were asking the question about how long it took. When I realized that I simultaneously wanted to pursue dance and fitness as a part of my career, I knew that my business in terms of the coaching side of the business wouldn't grow as fast, but I was okay with that because it was more interesting to me to be able to do all the things I wanted to do rather than grow really fast and feel like I was cutting off a part of my creativity. 
Are you still involved in dance and fitness? Oh, yeah. So um, so my book, Everything is Figureoutable, came out last year. And uh, I remember talking and like having big meetings with the publisher. And they're like, hey, what do we want to do to launch this book? And of course, you know, being who I am and doing what I do, I was like, okay, I have a lot of ideas on the digital side. All that's good. We're going to execute. But here's the idea that's in my heart. Imagine a Beyonce concert and a TED Talk had a baby and then threw a block party. That's what I want to do in New York City to kick off the book. And I just remember, you guys, my publisher sitting there just like eyes wide open, like <laughs> stunned, like you could hear a pin drop. They're like, is she serious? I'm like, oh, hell yes, I'm serious. So um, and we did it. I literally just a few months ago produced and performed in that exact concert here in New York City. We had a sold out Hammerstein Ballroom sold tickets on Ticketmaster. It was a two-hour experience. We had 15 backup dancers. I performed. I spoke. It was incredible. So all of the things that make me come alive are absolutely a part of my business still today. How have you been able to... I keep using the word balance a lot because I'm a new mom and trying to find balance, but I don't think it exists. It does not. (laughs) Which, yes. Yes. That is confirmed now. Um, But how have you been able to find a way to just execute all of these things that you're passionate about and want to do? And from the outside, looking at you and your business and having followed you over the years, like you make it look effortless. I know. It's not. I know how hard it is and figuring out systems and, you know, making it happen. But can you tell us some of the secrets? Oh, yeah. Tell us your secrets. (laughs) Well, a a couple things. One, I think that a mistake all of us humans make, and I constantly have to talk myself off the ledge with this one. So I'm always doing that self-talk. And as a team, we also take care of each other in this way. It's like we cannot, nor is it wise, to do all the things all at once. So a couple mantras that we live by, I do personally and we do in our company, one is simplify to amplify. So talking about the book launch for a second, um, you know, we couldn't control how great the book was going to do commercially, right? All we could control for me as a writer was doing my very best to put best content together that could possibly change lives. And I knew if the the content, what's inside the book is good, that's going to give it the best chance to have a long life. Um, And when it comes to promoting something, and we all know this right now, right? There's a good jillion things you can do to promote your business, your idea, your cause, whatever the thing is that you want to share with the world. But we can't do all the things. So I always go back to the 80-20 rule. What are 20% of the activities the processes, the promotions that I want to do that I think are going to get us 80% of the results that we're after. And so even though it seems like, and it may appear from the outside that we're doing a ton, we're actually really disciplined. And I, as a human, say no to way more than I say yes to. So this idea of simplifying to amplify, we don't you know, as a company, right? People have often said to me, like, you're so silly. So we have a flagship program that's called B-School. This is a great example. Um, It's an online business school for modern entrepreneurs. People like me who didn't have an MBA, didn't know what the hell they were doing, but want to start something on their own and don't necessarily want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on an advanced degree to help them do it, right? So we've been doing B-School for 11 years. We've helped over 55,000 people start and grow their businesses from over 600 different industries. People have said to me, Marie, you're leaving so much money on the table. Why don't you open it more than once a year? I'm like, because I don't want to. 
We put everything into the one time that we open enrollment. We wow the pants off of people as best we possibly can in terms of customer experience. And then we move on to other things. So even though new content comes out all the time in terms of Marie TV and the Marie Forleo podcast, I'm not shooting every week. We're batching things. There is a method to the madness and there's actually a lot of discipline involved and there's a lot of continuing to scale back. So the things that we do say yes to have a bigger impact. I have to imagine that you didn't just wake up and figure this out one day. It probably took saying yes to too many things to then realize what you needed to say no to. Do you have a, you know, checklist things have to go through before you can actually say yes to them? Like, how do you decide what you are saying yes and saying no to? Well, there's a couple of different layers to that. The first layer is me being intentional about the vision I have, not only for our company, but for my life, for my personal life. And uh, I've been with my partner, Josh, for it'll be 17 years in like a month. Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, when when him and I first got together, you know, I basically, I, I had an eight-year-old stepson immediately. And, you know, so it's like my life changed. I was like, okay, well, these things are important to me in my life, my relationships, my health, my family, um, just how I feel on a regular basis, those things, I don't want them to go away. I don't want the ambition I have inside to eat away at my quality of life, if that makes sense. So my own vision and metrics that matter to me are very clear. And then um, on the other side, you were asking, how do you decide what to say yes to? So if something comes into our world and it doesn't say, it doesn't, it's not getting me closer to these metrics that matter to me, both personally and for the business, it's an instant no. But how we decide that in the moment is I'm actually a very physical person. So I, if it doesn't feel, and I know this is going to sound maybe a little bit trite, if it doesn't sound enlivening or feel enlivening in my body, it's a no. It doesn't matter. I've had opportunities, like some that I don't want to, I can't say right now because I can't reveal things, but that some people are like, I cannot believe you said no to that. And it was because it didn't feel joyful. It didn't feel right. Doesn't matter what it looked like on paper. Doesn't matter who the partners were going to be. Doesn't matter what that could have quote unquote done for my career. It wasn't right. And so that's how I stay clear and trust. And it's actually a metric we use in our company. We were just making a decision just yesterday. There was an idea that we had that we wanted to test out this year. And we we had all said yes to it. And when we started getting into it, we have another phrase, clarity comes from engagement, not thought. When we started moving down the execution highway of this particular idea, everyone started to feel this weird resistance. Like we didn't want to work on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Or the ideas weren't quite coming out or just, you know, when things don't line up and we all stopped and we're like, wait a minute, we're all extremely hardworking. We're extremely ambitious. We don't procrastinate what's happening here. And I stepped back and took, I said, we shouldn't do this. This isn't right. We got to pull the plug right now. I got everyone on the phone. I said, how do you, how do you guys feel in your body? If I say we're not executing, if I say we're taking this off the table, we're not moving ahead, I want to hear honestly how you feel. And it doesn't have, just tell me. They started popping relief, joy, relief, excitement. I was like, boom, done. Out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Coming up, you'll learn a simple task for what's a bad choice versus what is simply outside your comfort zone and how physical activity can jumpstart creativity. I want to talk more about saying no. When Stephanie and I first started the business at one point in time, 
I had as the background of my phone, just say no, to remind myself that I don't have to say yes to all of these tempting things. And I was not successful at it. And still to this day, say yes to a lot of things. So and as entrepreneurs, people who are entrepreneurs, they take risks. How do you decide, you know, when you ask yourself what feels right? um, Distinguishing between, you know, what's exciting, and you should move forward or, you know, what's holding you back because it's just fear related. Yeah. So let's dive into that. But I also want to, I want to build on what you said too, about saying no, like the power of saying no is so important. I teach my B-schoolers to get on what I call the no train. So this is especially for those of us who tend to overcommit and we're constantly feeling overstretched and like we have so much on our plate that we feel like we're drowning and it's like you you just want to press the stop button on the world and say, I just need a minute, right? So getting on the no train goes like this. First class ticket on the no train. You start practicing like instantly. The moment anyone asks you anything, your first response is no. It might be in your own head. It might actually be what you say outwardly to them. You say, no, or I need to think about that. Like you stop yourself from habitually and automatically saying yes to everything. You take a step back and you take that pause. And, you know, uh, before we were talking a little bit about understanding your metrics that matter, having kind of like your clear goals set out for yourself about what's important to you. Everything that you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. Opportunity cost is a really real thing. And oftentimes, I often feel like, you know, sometimes if I go to a diner and I haven't eaten in a while, like my eyes are bigger than my stomach. I order all the things and you can't order all that. You can never finish all the things. And we do that oftentimes with our goals and our tasks and our commitments. So I would encourage everyone, if anyone's listening right now and they find themselves overstretched and overcommitted and exhausted, get a first class ticket on the no train. Do it for a month. Say no to everything. A really, uh, another great trick is if you wouldn't do the thing that someone asks you either right now or tomorrow, you know, sometimes you get that invite or that project like, oh, we'd like you to come here in October and it's January. You're like, oh, October is forever. Like, don't, yes, I'll say yes. If you wouldn't be excited to go tomorrow, don't say yes today. So now let's talk about, and this is one of my favorite topics. How to tell the difference, right? You have a big opportunity that comes up. And I think especially when you're an entrepreneur, you know, you can feel like, wow, this is a risk. I'm getting out of my comfort zone. I should really say yes to this. This is amazing. But how do you tell the difference between a healthy risk and moving out of your comfort zone versus your intuition telling you, oh, hell no, do not say yes. You're about to get yourself in trouble or go down a path that's going to cost you more than it's worth. And I've found this really fantastic, simple test that anyone can do listening right now. And it has worked every time. And I still use it to this day. Here's how it goes. First of all, you have to tap into your body. This is an area where you have to bypass your brain. Your brain is not necessarily your best friend. It's a wonderful tool, but it is a terrible master. You have to drop into your intuition, your gut, your feel, your actual physical body. Here's how it works. When you're considering saying yes to a particular opportunity, might be a speaking engagement, a big new client, a new hire, something in that realm. Close your eyes, get quiet, and ask yourself, does saying yes to moving ahead with this particular thing make me feel expansive or contracted? Now, you're asking yourself this question, you're by yourself, hopefully you don't have technology around. I guarantee you, in the nanosecond, 
after you ask yourself that question, you will have a physical reaction in your body. It'll be subtle, but it will be there. So let's talk about what expansive might feel like to you. Expansive might feel like your chest lifting, right? Even your head lifting up, your body moving forward in space, a sense of lightness, a sense of joy. Even if you're terrified, even if the thing sounds scary as hell, you've never done it before, it's so far outside your comfort zone, something about it makes you feel this sense of you're growing. Does that make, does that track? That's expansive. On the other side, if you ask yourself, does the idea of moving ahead with this opportunity make me feel expansive or contracted? And the nanosecond after you ask yourself, you feel a sense of heaviness in your stomach or dread or like your body's pulling back or if your eyes are closed, maybe you're gently shaking no or your shoulders start to hunch down or some other feeling of just anxiety, not goodness, something's bad, something's off. That is your sense of contractedness. Now, here's where it gets really tricky. This gets difficult for us when there's an opportunity on the line that our ego wants to say yes to. It's an opportunity where everyone else would kill for this opportunity, or there's a lot of money, or some other perceived ability for you to quote unquote get ahead. That's when you need to pay more attention than ever. Your body never lies. You know, Shakira's like, my hips don't lie. (laughs) Your body doesn't lie. And there is so much intelligence and wisdom in our physical bodies that our society has trained us out of listening to because mostly we live from the head up. But when you tap into this thing, you have so much wisdom at your fingertips that is brilliant for steering amazing business decisions. Do you meditate? I do. I so do does meditate. Does that help you tap into? It does, but I will tell you what helps me even more. Um, so meditation is really helpful for me. So technically, I have ADHD, right? So that's one of the things I remember. Just when I was going through that younger part of me, like being at the magazines, going like, "God, why can't I focus?" I just felt like there was literally something wrong, and I. Uh, got to know one of the best ADHD doctors in the country. And so we met and he put me through. He's like, oh, you have the gift. He's like, you absolutely have the gift. He's like, but you've learned how to manage it very well. And I was like, great. So meditation is one of the tools that I use to help myself manage that particular gift. But as it relates to what we were just talking about, physical activity, dance, movement, running, yoga, bouncing on a rebounder, I don't care what you do, moving your physical body is how you access the creativity and the intelligence in your body. It won't come from your mind. It never can. It's not where it lives. All of the goodness, and I, you know, I know we're listening right now, but if people could see me, I'm like pointing in a circular way through my body because, again, there's just so much untapped wisdom in there that our society till this point really hasn't shown us how to get into. Well, we'll put out some of these video clips since we're recording oh, it too, yes. so everyone can, everyone can see what you're talking about. How did as you well. learn this? Well, I noticed it because when I was running my small coaching business, right? Had my little clients. And then I was also a Nike athlete and choreographing dance videos and doing dance commercials. And at a certain point, I started to feel stretched too thin, right? The coaching business was starting to go great. I was starting to get bigger opportunities when it related to dance and fitness. And I had to step back and go, okay, now I'm feeling like I've got too many plates in the air. What do I want for this next stage in my life? And when I took a step back, I realized that I had the most opportunity to make an impact and to also take my business where I wanted it to be if I focused 
the vast majority of my attention on the online part of my business, right? So I took a step back from teaching and dancing as a profession. I went all in on my online business and I started to feel myself lose touch with the wisdom that I had such easy access to when I was teaching on a regular basis. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for the first few years, I remember feeling so friggin' stressed out. And I was like, what's going on? I'm overwhelmed. And I was like, whoa, I'm not moving enough because I stopped doing yeah. that as a as a career. So um, those first couple of months, excuse me, those first couple of years when I stopped teaching, they were hard in different ways because I was trying to scale the business in a new way. They were great, but I really learned the value of the wisdom of the body by not being in touch with it for so long. Did you have a mentor and coach along the way as well as you were building your business? You know, I am like a lifelong learner. So I always have like 10 books that I'm reading and I'm constantly asking people questions and talking to people. And I didn't have one particular coach, but I usually try and find people to either work with or hire that have an expertise in a particular area that I need support with. Um, so like at this stage in the game for me, it usually looks like someone, you know, like we're building out even more of our content team now. So I'm looking at working with people who have done that before, do you know, or, or certain specific things like that. But I've found that for me, I have so many things that I want to work on myself in general, that that can be overwhelming. But if there's a specific piece of the business, that's where I really thrive with people that are coaches or consultants. And can you walk us through what it looked like when you were going to go all in on the online business yes. and you started building that and scaling that? Because that's how B-School came to be, correct? Yes. So um, I had done a few group programs before. I had done one around productivity because that's one of my favorite topics. And I remember like being a one-on-one -on -one coach and working with people, it was awesome. And I love helping people change their lives. But I knew that in order to reach some of my financial goals, that was never going to get me there, right? And so the first time I taught one to many, meaning I taught that productivity course, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. People were getting to know each other and there was community forming and it was just incredible. And because I was teaching so much dance and fitness and traveling around meeting so many, mostly women, I was getting those same questions um, that we were talking about before we started record. Like, Marie, how are you doing this? How is your career working? How are you able to attract customers? And so many uh, women that I met, when I would tell them about the power of sales and marketing, they would be like, I need someone else to do that for me. That's gross. I don't want to be aggressive. I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be pushy. I'm the idea person, right? And I would want to shake the shit out of them because <laughs> I'm like, you don't understand. Sales and marketing is the lifeblood of any business. Yeah. And if you have an idea that you care about, a product or service that you genuinely think can change people's lives, if you don't do everything that you can to market and sell the bejesus out of it, you are stealing from those who need you most. Couple that with when I would go to business conferences when I was first starting out, it felt like Wall Street all over again. 99.9% .9 men on all the stages. Again, this was a different time. Yeah. This is not where we are right now. But back then, there wasn't one woman business leader that I was like, I was like, what's happening here? And when I would go to these conferences, the people on stage, they would basically talk about how to extract as much profit as possible. And there, it was just so terrible. It was all about customers being nothing more than numbers on the bottom of your balance sheet. And my experience with my dad growing up was like, no, 
Your customers are like your friends. They're like family. Those are people that you want to serve and over-deliver and find all these different ways to make them the star. So I felt this disconnect. And there was never any small business education that had any style. There was certainly no sense of humor. The aesthetics sucked. And so I saw this possibility. I said, you know, there are so many things I wish I knew the 10 years ago when I first started my business that no one was really sharing. So I created B-School. And um, I put together a program that I thought would be just excellent for people who wanted to start a business and master sales and marketing without losing their values or their heart and to do so in a way that had personality and that made them feel good and that also made a difference beyond just making money. And so putting that program together, it was really fun, but I didn't know if anyone was going to be into it. I didn't know if it would actually take off. It was just something I felt was needed in the marketplace. Up next... Why Marie demanded to change her book cover at the 11th hour. And a surprise. We have some really big news to share. We are so excited to announce the launch of Sweet Rye Social, a new division at Socialfly that's dedicated to growing emerging brands and businesses just like yours. Interested in learning more? Shoot us a line at info at sweetrise.com and we'll be happy to set up a complimentary 30-minute consultation. DM us with any questions. How big is your team now? Gosh, so we are about 35 and growing. And yeah. Can you tell us what it's been like growing your team from just you when you started to yes. people now? Oh my gosh. So first of all, I was the most horrible boss at first. I was so insecure. I had never done it before. I was just terrified, especially because when I first started and I was so young, most of the folks that I was considering hiring were like 10 to 15 years older than me. And I just had such a, a complex about that. I felt terrible. Um Thankfully, I stuck in there and I got better at it over time. I remember there was kind of, I think business growth usually happens in these little chunks and spurts, right? You kind of, you get a couple things together and you're like, okay, everything's good. And then all of a sudden you're like, nope, we need to grow again and we need to grow again. And I remember this one chapter where I was really questioning whether or not I was meant to be an entrepreneur because I was doing so many things myself. I had a small team, but I remember thinking, I need someone who is much more organized than me because I am highly creative and I need someone who's really good at managing a team on the day-to-day basis so that I could be out in front helping to grow the business. And I just wrote about it like, am I gonna find this person? Am I gonna find this person? And I remember it took like six, eight months, but I eventually did. And she was one of the most transformative hires of the company. Where'd you find her? Um, it was actually a friend of mine. I think this is one of the values of just getting out there and knowing other entrepreneurs. So a friend of mine that I had met right when I first started my business, he and his business were moving into a new stage. And he wrote me this email and he said, Marie, I don't know if you're hiring. We hadn't spoken in maybe like nine months. He's like, but I have a few superstars that are looking for their next opportunity. And do you know when you get that email, you're just like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know who this person is, but something feels really good. And I'm just going to say yes right now. (laughs) And I remember saying, I don't know who she is, but just send her my way. This sounds intriguing. And uh, this particular person, she is based in, in California. And I said, hey, why don't you come out to New York City and let's just spend a day together. I just want to know more about what you do and who you are and stuff like that. And I remember we wound up like having a full consulting session during the day and then polishing off two bottles of Italian red at night. And it was just like 
you know, business BFFs forever. I was like, okay, this is done. That's done. You're coming to work for me. That's it. So that was a, that was a big thing. But some of our best hires have been two, two sources for me. One, our audience. So some of my most critical people actually started off as customers and then two friends of friends. How about you guys? Oh. Yeah, we we find people through also through word of mouth. Uh, one person, Joanne, she actually was a, client. a former client of ours. Uh, but usually, we just find people by posting a resume on Indeed, and then we get a social media. Resumes. Social media, social yeah, media is big. And I feel like I mean, we use our Instagram specifically for our socialified channel, so people can see what it's like to work at our company, and then get direct messages from people all the time when we post that we're hiring. Like, please look at my resume because yeah. they want to be. They want to be part of that. And I think that's important to show what it's like. Yeah. Has there been a time in your business where something feels right to you, but it doesn't feel right to your team or vice versa? They want to do something that feels good to them, but you're against it. You know, not in a major way. So I'll tell you an example where we had, and this is why it's great to have smart people around, but that everyone's aligned on the same vision. So when I had my, um, if a Beyonce concert and a TED Talk had a baby and then through a block party moment, right? That's not a normal way to launch a book. And there's also a gajillion other things that you have to do to launch a book, including a book tour, including I was going to London, including I was doing a tour in Australia. It was like the lineup of what we had to do. And none of our team had ever done this before, myself included. It was just like, whoa, right? So we knew we were in for it. My original thought, I wanted to do that performance slash concert slash talk at five US cities. That was my idea. Thankfully, my director of operations raised her hand and she said, Marie, I don't want to crush your dreams, but I think doing that in five cities will take us under. What if we did it in New York? And I like took a step back. I was like, yes, like it was, do you know what I mean? So she raised her hand because something about my initial vision didn't quite sit right with her, given the fact that she's steering the rest of the of the business and can see all the moving pieces. And I'm in this one creative mode. Does that make sense? And I trust her enough and we all trust each other enough that if someone raises their hand and something's not right and we all just like hang out and listen to them, we haven't had one instance where one person was like, that's the worst decision. If someone's brave enough to say something's not right here, we're always like, you're right. Something's not right here. Let's listen and adjust. Would you say your intuition really has just always been right by leading by this philosophy? Or can you share a time when you just totally made the wrong call and had to oh. fix a lot of things? <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you this. So I just as a as a context builder, like I've been – being trained on my intuition since I was a kid. So I've always been super independent. I grew up in New Jersey and I remember like fighting with my mom because I wanted to walk to school by myself. And she's like, no way you're walking to school. You're going to get scooped up and kidnapped. You're like, no, it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> and I kept fighting and I kept fighting. And she said to me, look, I will let, and it wasn't very far. It was a few blocks, but still, you know, it's, it's what moms do, yes. right? You have to protect <laughs> your kids. And she said, I will let you walk to school now on one condition that you promise me that you listen to the small voice inside. My mom grew up in a, in a religious context. So she would tell me I had a direct line to God. She's like, you're always, you're going to get the message from God. If you ever feel anything's off, if like some guy pulls up in a car, is like, hey, little girl, you want some candy? You need to run. The moment that little voice goes off and says, there's danger, something's not okay. Even if something feels weird, I need you to listen to it because it's designed to always put you in the right direction. And so my intuition has always been the guiding force of growing the business. 
And I got to be honest, I can't, I have full body yeses or nos. Do you remember when I told you guys that story earlier about we were going down a certain direction and then I was like, hold on a second, something doesn't feel right? When I was publishing this book, Everything is Figure Outable, uh, I don't know if you guys know this about the publishing world, but oftentimes they test covers. So there'll be multiple covers and then they run a test, usually through a focus group or they actually spend some money online to see which cover is going to convert. So I knew I wanted this particular cover, but some people on the sales side of my publishing house thought it was too avant-garde. They thought that having the words layered on top of my image wasn't right, that maybe I look a little too powerful. That's a whole other conversation that I was about to like pull people's <laughs> hair out, right? But they wanted this other cover that we'll describe as more traditional or more basic. So they put the cover to the test. The cover that they wanted when they tested it with their people won five to one, okay? So they had the data to back up the salespeople's decision. And I, having all these other things to do, being really proud of the book, saying, okay, fine. You know, I don't know everything. I'm not going to be this diva or whatever. So we're moving along the publishing process and we get to the time where everything has to become final because tens of thousands of these books are about to be printed. It was a Friday afternoon, 5 p.m. New York City time. I literally, my body started to convulse. I'm not kidding you. you. And I wanted to throw up and I had to call the big publisher, like the big cheese head honcho on a Friday afternoon at 530 and say, look, I haven't asked for much during this process, but I've got to tell you, going with the cover that all the people want, that the data says that we should do, it's the wrong fucking decision. It's wrong. And I can't move ahead with it. He, thankfully, Adrian, who's a genius, he was like, Marie, I feel you and I hear you. And we will absolutely use the cover that you want. And it was like one of those game time decisions where I had all the self-doubt, like, who am I to say this? This is their business. They ran the data, all these things. And I got to tell you, after going on book tour, and I was I was just on an interview last week, so I was like, this is the, one of the best covers I've ever seen. It's gorgeous. And, I'm staring at it right you. now, and I've had it in my office for, for a few months. So it's a gorgeous you. cover. You made the right call. Thank you. And then, uh, but it it's like that. And I feel like, we have to give ourselves permission to not just trust data or trust outside opinions, but learn to trust ourselves. And I think becoming a leader requires us to do that. And sometimes it's going to make people uncomfortable. Sometimes you will throw your team into a tailspin. But I think the most courageous thing you can do is to be honest about what you know and then express it to the people who care and who, of course, are also invested not just in your success, but in your team's success. What is a typical day like for you? So um, I don't have super typical days because a couple things. One, I travel a bunch. Um, so sometimes, let's see if I'm in like a writing mode or I'm producing a new program or a book or something like that. It'll look like waking up usually around 5 a.m. Uh, because there's a reason for this. It's because I'm able to get done like two to three hours worth of really focused work before the rest of the world and my family and my dog and like, you know what I mean? Everyone gets up and starts asking for things on days when I'm shooting content. Uh, still like usually a 5 a.m. wake up time, but I'm going right to set. 
you know, and then it's like production mode and, and making everything happen. Um, and then uh, times when, when I'm traveling, goodness gracious, that can be anything. I will, you know, fit in the meditation, the workout, some of my little ritualistic things in any little pockets I can get. Like there's been times when I've been sitting in a city taxi, you know, and I'm like, oh, I can, I can fit in a little 10 minute meditation right now. Cause there's some, there's some traffic. I'm good. Um, but yeah, it's usually a lot of me sitting in front of my computer. It doesn't look very glamorous. I'm in a messy bun. I'm in sweatpants. Sometimes a day or two will go by and I don't shower. <laughs> That's just the truth. Um, and then, you know, other days, it's just a lot of kind of back to back to back type of things like interviews or filming or things like that. Do you ever get tired? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just the past fall, uh, being on tour for three months, that was definitely a lot. And I remember coming to the end of the year and thinking like, I need a break. Yeah. And I told the team we had planned for it. It was like once I hit um, a December baby. So my birthday's on December 7th. I'm like, y'all, once we get past my birthday, I'm peacing out. So we actually have a practice in our company. Um which was produced by a, a PMS carb craving that I had years ago. <laughs> I was PMSing really hard one day in my neighborhood in the West Village. And I was like, I need a croissant. Like, I need a croissant right now. And I went to this little French bakery around the corner, and they were closed. And they had this white piece of paper up that was handwritten, and it said, closed due to vacation back in two weeks. And this was probably like, I don't know, five, six years ago now. And I just remember, I don't know, for whatever reason, I was like, huh closed for vacation for two weeks. How civilized. <laughs> and I went back to my team and I said, you guys, I know we're living in this digital age. I know we have a weekly show, a weekly podcast. But what if we decided to close for two weeks in the summer and close for two weeks in the winter and just give everyone some downtime? And my team was like, oh, hell yes. They're like, this sounds <laughs> No amazing. one's saying no to that. No one's saying no. <laughs> so we actually have this practice. And the reason I was bringing it up is because I said, I know, you know we'll all be off for two weeks over the holidays. I said, but mama's going to be off for like three or four weeks during the holidays so she can get herself back together so we can kick some butt in 2020. So um, the tired usually comes after a known sprint, if that makes yeah. sense, where I know I'm going to hit it hard and I build in buffers because, again, my experience as a Nike athlete taught me you can't go – I can't. I will speak for myself personally – I'm not my best if I push hard incessantly. I'm really good if I go hard, take a break. Go hard, take a break. Go hard, take a break. That rest and recovery thing for me works really good as a cycle. I have two very important follow-up questions. One, did you get your croissant? No. I, I think I got like a muffin or I went somewhere else. But I got so damn inspired by that little white piece of paper that I literally went home and said, we are doing this. And so now every year we close our company for um, two weeks over the summer and two weeks over the winter. I love that. So no croissant, but four weeks vacation. That's right. <laughs> and where do you go on vacation? Where do you like to travel to? So for the past few years, um, I've been obsessed with my ancestral homeland, Italy. Uh, I really, really, I always feel like I come home more of myself. Like I feel more beautiful. I feel more confident. I feel more in touch with life on a really deep level when I come home from there. And Josh, my partner, um, he's been so great to indulge me every year. And this year he's like, can we go to Portugal? I'm like, yeah. So this year, <laughs> Portugal. I love it. And what are you grateful for every day? Oh my goodness. Every single day I'm grateful for my team, the people that I work with, they're literally like, I would do anything for them. They are so brilliant. 
They are so dedicated. They're so hardworking. They're so fun. They make me laugh. Like we communicate in gifts in our company and some of the stuff that they come up with just I'm telling you, I cry laughing. So I'm, I'm super grateful for them. I'm also super grateful for um, Josh. He's an amazing partner. Like he's an actor, so we're in completely different industries. But it's so nice to be with someone who really understands me at my core. And I'm also just super grateful for our audience. Like I feel like there's people that have been with me since I was teaching at Crunch. They were like my front row hip hop mafia. And the fact that they're like still around, commenting on Instagram and they're like, eager to do whatever we're up to means the world. I love that. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? It means kicking ass. It means being really confident in, in who you are and being unapologetic about what you have to share with the world. I think it means taking a stand for what you believe in, for speaking up for what's right, and for doing your business your way. I love that. Well, where can everyone find you, follow you, and of course, buy your book. And if they're interested in learning more about B-School, where should everyone go? Yeah. So around the social channels, it's just at Marie Forleo. Um, B-School, which is awesome. Uh, You can go to joinbschool.com. We have so much free business training coming up, videos and workshops and webinars. And even if you never wind up becoming a B-Schooler, I guarantee if you pay attention to those free trainings, you will have so many tactics and ideas that will help you grow your business. And then Everything is Figure Outable, which I'm so proud of as a book. Um, If you like listening, it's on Audible. Uh, If you would be so kind as to support your local booksellers, you can go in and ask for it. And then, of course, it's on Amazon and, and anywhere books are sold. Well, thank you for that wonderful gift to our audience. We have a special gift for you, which is right below your seat. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Check it. Oh, this is so sweet. You guys, entrepreneurista swag bag. So you you can have all things you need in there. Yay. (laughs) Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story and journey and all these incredible tips. And as Courtney said before, I can't wait to re-listen to this episode again so I can take notes and remember everything that you shared because super helpful information for for entrepreneurs. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Thanks for listening. 